This podcast is brought to you by Salon London as part of our sex and drugs and rock and roll season. Here, food historian Leonie Souk unravels the story behind our addiction to legal highs, coffee and sugar. So, you might think that food and drugs don't make the most obvious partnership, but I'm here to talk about three of the most consumed substances on earth, a little bit of their history and their place now as icons of modern culture. First, I want to look at the dark brew and white crystals um, that are two of our most common daily addictions. And then I want to do a bit of a detour into the unusual and think about which substances we accept happily on our tables and why. Now, I tend to do talks by bribery, um, so anything I speak about, I match to an edible illustration of the idea. So today, I'll also be getting you gastronomically high on the drugs we're talking about. So hopefully, with a bit of tasting uh, and some whistle-stop time-travelling, we'll consider what these drugs have done for us. And ultimately, I'll be suggesting that their cultural offerings make them as socially addictive as the chemical substances themselves. Now, I think the first taste is coming round. Um, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is a coffee cream. So as you might guess, the first drug we're hitting is caffeine in the form of our daily cup of the dark stuff. So why talk about coffee? Well, first off, I'm struck by its peculiar place as the acceptable face of addiction. In fact, in America, the Psychiatric Association categorizes coffee with socially unacceptable drugs like heroin and nicotine. The Olympic Games Committee classifies caffeine alongside steroids as a doping agent. And there's now a 12-step caffeine anonymous program, just like with alcohol or tobacco. Yet we often joke and boast about our dependency, whether it's the single estate raw milk artisan latte we just have to have before we can function, or the number of double espressos that kept us going through the night to meet the deadline. So what keeps us hooked uh, to a drug that has a recommended daily limit of around three to four cups and becomes toxic at a dose of 10 grams? Well, as I'm sure any coffee drinker knows, in part we're addicted to its ability to affect mental alertness and energy. Now, I'm going to do a really quick science bit because um, I think I'm probably the last person in this room to uh, tell you about science. Um, but very quickly and briefly, when we metabolize caffeine, it binds to certain brain receptors and stops them interacting with their natural partners, which are sleep hormones that calm and slow us down. With these signals blocked, our brains continue in a heightened state of animation and we feel more awake and agile. We get a surge in brain activity and physical tests show that drinking two cups of strong coffee enhances athletic performance in 75% of the, um, of the population. So in layman's terms, caffeine is a stimulant and it's not surprising we like the stuff. In fact, it's the reason we ever even noticed it when an Ethiopian goat herder realised his goats became particularly active after eating the beans and a passing holy man figured it might also work wonders on keeping his disciples awake through his long prayer services. And still now, although we may not struggle with night-long sermons, it's no wonder that a generation characterised by speedy technology and adrenaline junkies is, addi is addicted to an intellectual lubricant that gives us instant hits and keeps us snappy in a fast-paced world. But certainly from some of the early descriptions, you wonder how such a strange and bitter drink ever caught on. Coffee's been called many things over the centuries, and just by the names alone, you get the picture of a pretty strange, potent substance. 
from dark wine to diabolical hellbrew, a muddy kind of beverage to Turkish gruel and a satanic tipple. It's not exactly a complimentary picture. But what we drink, where we do it, and with whom, serve all sorts of social functions. It can alter states of consciousness, as with alcohol, and define social groups or gatherings. So I think we can explain our addiction in a very different way to a taste for strange flavours or a dependency on stimulants. Since coffee in particular has personality, its past is curious, romantic and erudite. Social disruption and cultural upheaval have been brewed, brewed pretty much wherever the dark liquid's been drunk. Because coffee isn't just a drug of alertness, it's the drug of communication and creativity. It's the drink that Pepys records drinking amid the ferment of Republican England. It's the exotic liquor that Alexander Pope repeatedly features in The Rape of the Lock, a poem that some say was even based on the chatter of coffeehouse gossip. And it's the drink that so dazzled the romantics that Charles Lamb wrote a poem about the noble Frenchman who risked death to introduce it in the French colonies in Martinique. And that's not even to mention the many myths of famous caffeine-enslaved minds, Beethoven and Sartre, for example, were famed for their coffee consumption, and Balzac was said to crush the beans and eat the powder. Which begs the question, is our addiction just to the beans' chemical effect, or also to the potency of the ritual that surrounds it? So let's jump back to 1652, when Europe's first coffee house sprang up in London. Until the 17th century, we were an ale-drinking society, essentially sitting in a fog of alcoholic fumes, drinking an average of three litres of beer a day each. But as we swapped one intoxicating substance for another, the effects were remarkable. The first coffee house was originally a shed-like structure in the grounds of the Royal Exchange. People would buy their drink from the hatch and then huddle quickly nearby to slurp their purchase. It proved instantly popular and soon had to be moved into permanent um, premises nearby. And in doing so, it created a complete revolution of sober sociability. The drink provided an alternative to drunken taverns, a space with the addictive offering of dynamic conversation and democratic thought. And this happened at a time when London was alive with seditious pamphlets, scurrilous satire and discussion about Commonwealth politics. Coffee houses became the marketplace not just for a novel, exotic Turkish brew, but also for the trade of current affairs, business and gossip. They even began to specialise. The Turks' head for political debates, for example, or Lloyds of London for shipping trade. Soon, a whole press network had been established to keep up with coffee shop news. Correspondents were stationed in each coffee house, reporting back the gossip of their particular area, and these newsletters became what we now know as Tatler. So, it was intoxicating mix a compelling drink that encouraged mental agility and a powerful environment that had the glittering allure of accessible knowledge. In fact, so influential were these so-called penny universities that Jonathan Swift remarked he was not yet convinced that any access to men in power gives a man more truth or light than the politics of a coffee house. Coffee is testament to our insatiable desire for information and communication, an addictive proposition that still holds true today. We may not have Tatler reporters stationed in our local cafes, but the rows of open laptops connected to invisible Wi-Fi 
make our caffeine haunts no less, no less important as hubs of thought, full of keyboard-tapping information junkies. But now, let's move on to the second hit of the night, the addictive white crystals we all know as sugar. And it's really not such a jump from the coffee houses of 17th century London, because as these establishments flourished, ambitious merchants also sought contracts for Indian tea, South American chocolate, and Caribbean sugar to meet demand. And just as coffee marked a cultural shift from ale drinking to caffeine slurping, the introduction of sugar marks another significant change, from a medieval world sweetened by honey to the beginnings of the sugar-centric modern era we recognise today. But while our caffeine fixes tell us about our appetite for democratic thought, our taste for the sweet stuff, at least when it first arrived, has a very different story. It speaks of elitism, status, and a very British addiction to class and respectability. So if coffee is the drug of conversation and creativity, sugar is the intoxicating substance of power and aspiration. Now, the basic truth is that we're hardwired to be addicts to the white stuff. An injection of sugar into the bloodstream stimulates the same pleasure centres of the brain that respond to heroin and cocaine. And we've our simian ancestors to thank for developing these um, pleasure responses. Back when craving and finding fructose was just what we needed to survive, it was a pretty helpful mechanism. As was the point at which we evolved to be able to get by on very little of it. During the Ice Age, our bodies became very efficient at processing fructose, storing even small amounts as fat to help us through winters when food was scarce. But obviously, now we live in a sugar-flooded world. And as we all know, the health equation of this inbuilt addiction isn't so great. But as with coffee, I think there's more to our sugar cravings than physical pleasure. If we look back to its entrance into European society, we don't just like sugar because of the sweet taste and endorphin high. We've been addicted to the power rush it has afforded and fell in love with its place in that well-known theatre of prestige, the British table. Sugar spread across all of Europe in the mid-15th century as an aristocratic luxury, presented to kings in the form of sugar loaves and crafted by court bakers. And although we didn't actually own any sugar plantations until the 17th century, the English in particular have had a long and hard-hitting addiction. In fact, we were pretty much the worst offenders in Europe, importing 10,000 tonnes of sugar by 1700 and 150,000 only a century later. Just think of the Elizabethans and the Queen's famously blackened teeth to remind us what a sweet tooth our aristocracy have had for 500-odd years. But perhaps more telling than rotting teeth are the elaborate table confections that drove Renaissance nobility wild. Sugary sculptures of castles, soldiers and weapons, marzipan models of beasts, birds and fish, and of course huge arrays of jewel-like jellies, marmalades and sweetmeats all played their part in an elaborate display of wealth and distinction. It's enough to make your teeth ache. Now, Italian courtly feasts had featured fantastical sugar works since the early 15th century. They were known as triumphi, and these objects were even worked on by famous Renaissance sculptures, moulding, chiselling and modelling sugar like wax. But it was in England that sugar prompted a whole new addition to the history of dining. In the 1520s, the sugar banquet developed as a significant diplomatic tool at the English court. Quite separate from the tradition of feasting, they took place after a decadent dinner, 
but included only a select elite from the meal and involved a whole separate and uniquely devised architectural space. The guests indulged in confectionery, viewed costly sugar collations and drank distilled waters, all as part of our early modern diplomatic negotiations. And happily for our anxious, class-conscious culture, it wasn't just on these extravagant occasions that sugar provided the ingredients for a spectacle of elitism. As everyday domestic use increased, it offered the literal means of social grading. Refined white crystals were enviably top-notch, while dark molasses sat at the bottom of the social pile. With a spectrum of shades, or should we say rank, in between, sugar took its place firmly in the history of the British class system. It was the heady substance of snobbery. But if England held the crown for the sweetest tooth for centuries, I think even we've been well and truly surpassed. It's pretty hard to talk about sugar consumption and not arrive on the shores of the USA. The average American eats 22.7 teaspoons of added sugar a day. In 2011, they spent $32 billion on sweets, and 25% of American adolescents either have or are on the verge of developing type 2 diabetes. This is a 10% rise since the 1990s. And worryingly, I'm sure we're not much better. Although our obesity levels have been fairly stable since their peak in 2000, we still drink around 70% more sugar than the government says we should. Scottish children's teeth, for example, are apparently the same quality of those in Kazakhstan, and Scottish teenagers drink an average of 287 cans of fizzy drink a year. But it's over in America that sugar has been gradually changing the way we eat and snack. And also in the 20th century, it's America, not England, which puts, which puts sugar at the heart of its nation. Quite literally, in the hands of mid-century artists like Andy Warhol, it became an icon of 20th century American identity. So if sugar marked an addiction to elitism for years, its more recent incarnation couldn't be more different. And its place in the pop art explosion of 1960s America offers a snapshot of just how huge this transformation has been. Forget satisfying social pretensions. In the last century, sugar has become a drug that offers a very different buzz. It caters for the tenacious cravings of the everyman, with its intoxicating message of hope and opportunity. No wonder it took a play its place in an art movement intent on smashing the barriers between high and low culture. These artists of the 60s didn't just paint any old piece of ephemera. They were painting modern America. And what's striking is how often sugar plays a part. The visual references are everywhere, and it seems deep-rooted in the cultural psyche. What about Warhol's famous cola bottle series? Or we've got Roy Lichtenstein's large pixelated canvas of cherry pie in 1962. Or Tom Wesselman painting milkshakes and ice creams in his series of great American nudes. Even Lichtenstein's first breakthrough canvas, Look Mickey, that appears to make no particular reference to the sweet stuff, has its links. The story goes that a cartoon wrapper inside a packet of bubblegum inspired the artist to paint the masterpiece. Fast food and pop culture, it seems, go resolutely hand in hand. So, while you may think of the New York factory scene as being fueled up on alcohol and amphetamines, Perhaps it's not so surprising to hear Warhol voice his obsession with quite another addictive substance. In The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, he wrote, I'll buy a huge piece of meat, cook it up for dinner, 
and then right before it's done, I'll break down and have what I wanted for dinner in the first place, bread and jam. I'm only kidding myself when I go through the motion of cooking protein. All I ever really want is sugar. So when Schraff's commissioned him to come up with an ad for their restaurant in 1969, they'd obviously got the right guy. Warhol created a 60-second, shimmering, pulsating close-up of a chocolate sundae. The advert tied in with their proud new product, the Underground Sunday, which, according to its makers, came complete with mind-blowing chocolate sauce undulating within a mountain of pure whipped cream. So Warhol's most bizarre, tricky cinematic moment is prompted by a pure sugar rush. But of course it's the cola bottle series that are his most famous emblems of sugary modern America. And they were a perfect candidate for Warhol's fetishized gallery of commodity and commercialism. What better example of a substance empty of any real value being packaged into endlessly seductive products than sugar? But of course, while those cola bottles seem to capture so brilliantly the zeitgeist of 1960s America, fizzy drinks have become a real 21st century source of contention. Some scientists claim that sugar-sweetened drinks play the biggest role in the fight to reverse obesity. They contribute more calories to the diet than any other single type of food or drink, and battling to have them removed from schools is top of the health agenda. Yet kicking our sugar habit remains a tricky business. Sugar gives us quick, momentary pleasure, the very reason it so beguiled Warhol and made the ultimate pop food. It was perfect gratification in the new world of instant, disposable consumerism. And nothing much has changed. What's more quintessentially all-American than a cupcake piled high with a buttercream swirl? Cupcakes may have made their entry in an American cookbook of 1826, but Carrie Bradshaw eating a Magnolia Bakery version in Sex and the City has made it as iconically New York as the cola bottle or cherry pie half a century earlier. So today, as in the 60s, sugar trades on a powerful message of easy and, most importantly, democratic pleasure. It's exhilarating stuff. Like Sarah Jessica Parker, we too can visit the Magnolia Bakery and buy a cupcake for a few dollars. When Warhol places cola bottles next to his icons of cinema or rock and roll albums, sugar took its place as another measure of the optimistic American spirit. As he said in the philosophy, you can be watching TV and see Coca-Cola, and you know that the president drinks Coke, Liz Taylor drinks Coke, and just think, you can drink Coke too. But we all know these sugary confections scream rather too loudly with their bright icing and seductive bubbles. It's not optimism they peddle. It seems to me that the addictive substance sugar really offers isn't status, aspiration, or even hope. It's solace. And this has been the case for years. In the 19th century, the inmates of Nacton Poorhouse were so addicted to the substance that they petitioned to reject their usual peas porridge and be allowed to use their food money to buy bread and butter, washed down with tea and sugar instead. By the second half of the same century, England's poor were eating more sugar than the rich, and we were the world's largest sugar consumer. George Orwell describes the conundrum far better than I can in The Road to Wigan Pier. He says, The peculiar evil is this, that the less money you have, the less inclined you feel to spend it on wholesome food. When you are unemployed, which is to say, when you are underfed, harassed, bored and miserable, you don't want to eat dull, wholesome food. White bread and marge and sugar tea don't nourish you to any extent, 
but they're nicer than brown bread and dripping and cold water. Unemployment is an endless misery that has got to be constantly palliated, and especially with tea, the Englishman's opium. Marx might have said that religion was the opium of the poor, and Orwell posits tea, but perhaps we should argue that it's the sugar in the tea that has been the solace for so many years, and now developed into a multi-billion pound industry of emotionally and physically addictive eating. But the truth is, we're all involved in this habit, complicit in the exchange of sugar for solace. It's what fuels our TV screens as well as our tables. Sugar feeds nostalgia, which in turn offers comfort. It's why the Great British Bake Off boomed in recession Britain, and why companies relaunch past products like the reissuing of Whisper Bars or old sweet shop classics. Our food culture is full of culinary myths, designed to reel us in and get us hooked, and none more so than the sugar world. It's a drug of pleasure, which the epicure in me is inclined to respect, but there seems to be a dangerous line between pleasurable habit and what's becoming an increasingly deadly dependency. Um, the parallels between tobacco and sugar are mounting. Political lobbying is increasing, and 62 organisations called on the Chancellor this year to introduce a sugary drinks duty, which would raise £1 billion a year. It seems like the sugar industry might be the next big battle between governments and big corporations, along the lines of the 40-year fight that finally toppled the tobacco giants. But I also think that the whole concept of having tobacco in food is a good way to get us to question our assumptions about food and addictive substances. Where do we draw the line with our gastronomic cravings? We happily ingest drugs like caffeine and sugar, yet in 2001, most of New York was aghast when tobacco started appearing on menus around the city. Tobacco has been used medicinally for thousands of years in South and North America, and in the 1980s, French chefs began to experiment with it. Yet, even though the health risks are low, still customers in New York were squeamish. Ultimately, most chefs changed or removed the tobacco elements from their dishes. And interestingly, at around the same time, a cookbook by Townsend Day-Lewis included a recipe for fig tart with tobacco caramel. It was kept in by Random House for the UK edition, but not in the American edition. So, does it all start to feel a little arbitrary? It all makes for a hazy line between which addictions are acceptable and which are not. And I guess the choice is just extremely subjective. Do you think caffeine and sugar are dangerous drugs that are going strangely unnoticed? Or are you a natural libertine who thinks that prohibition has gone mad? Is it crazy to suggest we impose limits on caffeine and sugar just as, to, just as the tobacco industry has felt the hit? Ultimately, this is all about perception. We constantly reassess our relationships with food and ingredients, and their place in society changes through time. Who knows what we'll think of our present addictions in a few decades, or perhaps what new ones might be top of our daily fix. More about Leonie can be found at her website, The Gossip Bowl, at www.gossipbowl.com.